Welcome to How to Decorate from Ballard Designs, a podcast all about the trials and triumphs of decorating and redecorating your home. Each week, we'll help you unleash your inner decorator. I'm Caroline, and I'm on the marketing team. And I'm Taryn, and I'm a product designer. And I'm Liz. I head up the Ballard Creative Team. We're your host. Join the expert team at Ballard Designs for tips, tricks, and tales from interior designers, stylists, and other talents in the design world. Plus, we'll answer a listener question at the end of each show. So don't forget to send them to podcast at ballarddesigns.net. Yes, we love answering them. Now, on with the show. We are thrilled to welcome back to the show world-renowned architect Peter Penoyer. His eponymous architecture firm has helped redefine New York's architecture, specializing in new construction, renovation, and preservation of residential, commercial, and institutional projects around the world. His work has been recognized by the Institute of Classical Architecture and Art, and he's been regularly listed on Architectural Digests, AD100 list. He's authored 10 books, including his most recent monograph of the firm's work, Peter Penoyer's Architects, City, and Country. Peter, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. And I do love writing, but I have a co-author named Ann Walker, and she does a lot of the work. So no, but I, I do love writing. And um, and I think it's, a, it's I'm, I'm happy to, to talk about the book and anything else you have on your mind. Well, it's, it, I, I love just, you know, taking a look at all of your titles too, because they're, they're half and half. There's, you know, lots of scholarship around architectural, you know, figures. Um, and then of course we've, we've talked in the show about your, um, book Rowdy Meadow, um, which we, I think it was what a year or two years ago now, um, a gorgeous sculpture garden and estate in Ohio. So it's great to come back again and, you know, talk about this, um, just a compilation of so many of your projects, but, you know, my first question really is how you chose the project for the book because you have so, like so much work, so prolific, a large team. I think you're like 50 architects on your team. Um, I imagine there's so much that you didn't include. So I was kind of curious how you just whittled it down to what ended up in this most recent collection. I mean, I think I think as an architect, you love the things that are really, uh, did my sound drop out or no, sorry. Um, I think as an architect, you, you really love the projects, not necessarily because of their size. Um, so, you know, I definitely wanted to have the buildings we've done those 18 story apartment buildings, because those feel like I've really put something in New York. They're not quite tall enough to be considered skyline. I think in some cities they would be, um, and then there are smaller projects like an apartment, you know, which is where you're operating as a designer totally within um, a box, essentially. Um, and they're really challenging, um, but they're not large, uh, but we love that kind of work. So I think it was important to show the diversity of the work. And also that's a reflection of the, of the different kinds of talent we have here. Um, so, you know, this isn't a firm where I'm the generator of all the good ideas. There are people here who are better at certain things than I am, and they're good at uh, different scales and different kinds of styles. And so all those people get to see their work um, in in print, which is really important for the team. Um, And also, um, we're, we're very careful in our books to credit everyone who worked on the project, you know, at any level. So that's, you know, a range of projects, small to big, uh, city, country, um, and, uh, you know, and then there's some that where people are very private and we're, you know, we respect that. 
um, and you know you don't necessarily want um, people seeing your your floor plan. Some people don't. Some people are proud of it. Um, and and so that you know we didn't want to categorize the work. And also, the firm isn't big enough that I could do a book just on tall buildings or just on houses. Uh, the other thing I should say is that um, we have such incredible relationships with brilliant interior designers. Um, and so, you know, it's interesting to see um, what we do with David Kleinberg versus what we do, um, you know, with Miles Red. Um, and, and, you know, you see that we really are joining with them and creating um, things. And none of the projects like those would look like what they do without the that collaboration. Yeah, it was fun, actually, because... Um you know, a couple of the designers we've had on the show for, uh, obviously Katie Ritter. Uh, we talked, I think you even either it was in her episode or an episode with you and Alice, maybe where we talked about the project with the, the cupola, because as I was reading about, it, I was like, I, we've talked about this cupola before, I think. Um, and then I, we got to like, I got to the Victoria Hagen project and, um, hers looked familiar too. And it's because we, we had her on the show because of her recent book. So right, it was right. fun to see some familiar faces and, and revisit some projects that we'd seen in a different context. Yeah, absolutely. No, we have a lot of fun. And um, Katie and I continue to do that. We're heading out for a meeting tomorrow morning um, to show a client um, who has a wonderful house, but they want us to kind of reinvent it, which is a challenge because it's a fairly new house. Mm. So it's an unusual exercise. What What is... What does that look like? I mean, how it's, it's a new project. I guess you don't have the details yet, but so no, no, what? no. So we're, we're the house is becoming more about warmth and antiques and more Robert Keim and less, you know, modernism. So it's it's um, a slight shift in the feeling of a few rooms in a house. It's fun. I did love the. Um, there was one project where you talked about it was combining two townhouses together. Yes. Yes. And they had, you know, different facades. So maybe you could kind of tell our listeners about that and that process, because it seemed like a very complicated puzzle to solve. So that, that was really tricky because um, the client acquired two houses off Fifth Avenue um, in a beautiful neighborhood. Uh, and the houses had been built at different times and the floors didn't align and the windows didn't align. In fact, one of them had a huge double height room on the street where the man who commissioned it in the 1920s had private theatrical performances. Um, and then upstairs he had a rabbit warren of tiny little rooms, which apparently for all the chorus girls would live there and put on these plays. So it was a very strange house. The house next door was more conventional. Um, and um, they first looked at making it all kind of, I'd say modern and sort of equalizing all the floor levels so that it would have been uh, it would have had a flat wall in the back and it would have been kind of conventional and predictable, but instead we embraced all the complexity and idiosyncrasies of having two houses. So in the living room, there's an archway and you go through this thick wall between the buildings and you go down steps and then there are little cabinets in the wall where they have collections of things. And um, so it's, it's more interesting and there are six kids in this family, which is terrific because it's big and we love a lot of life in our projects. And so, and the kids' rooms are all, each one is different. Each one either has a little balcony or maybe the roof is sloped or maybe you have to go around kind of a little hallway to get there. So it ended up being um, an incredibly complicated 
thing to weave this all together a bit. All those uh, particular moments in the plan made it worth it. At the end of this, I told the client, you know, it, we would have been, you know, probably months ahead had you just handed me a 50-foot block of Manhattan real estate and build a new house from scratch, but it wouldn't have been nearly as interesting. I didn't realize that this was such a large family, and I was thinking, wow, 22,000 square feet is a lot of square footage in Manhattan. But I was, I mean, even with, you know, eight people, how do you make every single room purposeful? Because... That, that's a lot of that's a lot of space, but you know I I kind of see it as you're trying to make them use every room and give, you know, purpose and value to the room. But how do you? I mean, how can you? Do, how are there that many things that you need? Well, I mean, as some people, um, you know, entertain and have a civic life and have friends and do things in their community, and they love to be able to have bigger events. So sometimes there is a need for actually having a really big living room. Um, you know, how do I do that? Well, I mean, I do the same thing with every family or every client where I have them talk about what their day looks like. And I do it from both ends. I say, well, what do you do when you get up? Like, where do you go? Where do you have breakfast? Where do you, how does your day unfold? Um, and with, you know, with this family, you also say, well, so what do the kids do when they get home? Like, where do they put their backpacks? And if one of them needs to meet a tutor or something, where do they, or if a teacher is visiting, where do you, you know, where do you do that? So you certainly don't want to have this grandiose or not grandiose, but, you know, very large scale living room if a visitor has never been there before, because it could feel sort of intimidating. So, you know, in this house, we do things like make a little sitting room near the front door that's incredibly comfortable and welcoming, but it's not like you're bringing them into your whole, uh, you know, well, it's a mansion, right? (laughs) It's a mansion. So you want to kind of uh, do it that way. And then, um, the kids' rooms are organized in a way that means that I, I love the idea that children will come back to a house like that, that you'll have it forever, um, and that it's not, a, you know, this isn't a situation where you'll necessarily down, need to downsize so that you'll have children come back and grandchildren and it will go on for a very long time. That's the greatest thing I can do, you know, when, when that's the goal of the client. And in this case, the rooms, some of them have a kind of independence, the way they're organized so that you don't feel like you're in a bedroom hall looking right into someone's bedroom, but there's a little vestibule and then the closet and the, uh, and the bathroom are a buffer before you get to the room beyond. And it makes it, as people get older and more comfortable, um, and it certainly makes it more comfortable for guests. And those things take up more space. They definitely do. Um, and it's not for everyone. I love seeing the cross-section of this property in particular, it felt a lot more like a Wes Anderson film. (laughs) (laughs) And you notice the pool in the bottom, which is 75 feet. (laughs) It's incredible. Yeah, that was fun. Um, No, I like that idea that it's a Wes Anderson. Um, Yeah, it has a lot of little things going on. It's like a dollhouse, right? A lot of character. A lot of character. Well, that was something I really loved about this book is that you, you did include the plans where, you know, where you're clients were comfortable. And it does help as a reader to orient yourself, of course. And it really just makes it even more intriguing to see into your spaces and, okay, so we're looking here and I know where I am, where, you know, with some design books, that's not the case. Um, So that part made it, I loved it. Yeah. I mean, so when, when I, you know, when I write books with Anne and when we photograph and with my partners and draw these things, we you know, we think, well, this, we should try to make a book that's interesting to people who just want to take 
a, a dip into our work and look at things and maybe have ideas that are more localized. Like I love that tile or look at that wood or look at that ceiling. But we also, I believe that you should be writing the book and drawing for those, for the most 10 demanding readers you'll ever have. <laughs> like the someone like, you know, I want my friend and my professor from college, uh, Bob Stern, Robert A.M. Stern, to, if he picks it up, if he actually reads it, I imagine, because he's, you know, a brilliant writer and very strict about grammar and all that. I want to make sure he's happy with it and that my footnote is correct. Like I, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not neurotic student. who's always worried that I'm going to get caught, you know, screwing up a footnote or something. So, and the same thing with the plans, like we, the plans really have to be accurate. And in some books, people rush it out and they're not quite the final plan or something. So I do think it's important that people be able to feel comfortable looking at a photograph and then finding themselves um, in the, what did you say? The Wes Anderson world of the section. <laughs> I do think that that's something that everyone can get something out of is I find floor plans and architectural drawings to be so fascinating, but also like instructive. I don't know. There's just something about seeing it in a top down view that is, you can, you know, just clearly see like the flow in a way that maybe you can't like at eye level, I don't know. There's, I just think it's, it's really helpful if you are sort of starting even your own project or redecorating your house to look at the floor plan and, you know, kind of pencil it out and draw a little chair and a little sofa and, you know, kind of walk yourself through the rooms, through your doorways and everything. So the plans certainly help in, in, in these grand spaces too. Yeah, I think it's so important. And I also don't believe that people should be intimidated by plans and feel like they can't read them. I think we just all need to slow down. And uh, my favorite way of talking about it with people who haven't looked at plans in detail before is, and it, by the way, it's important that clients understand the plans completely. We don't like to surprise people. <laughs> but it's just imagine you're walking through the front door and, and then the plan tells you what you'll see next. You just look at it and then you see where where is that door and what's beyond that door. So just take it as a, as a physical procession through the house. Um, and um, and that, that helps you when you're in the design phase. Um, and it helps you think about you know, what it's like to live there. I, I, and I do that with electrical plans too. Um, and I'm completely maniacal about kitchens, like where you step next and where you go next and how, you know, where everything's located. So, and all that's in the plan and you don't have to be a trained architect, uh, to benefit from that detail. You know, everyone should be able to do it and your architect should help you, you know, do that and not, act like it's some sort of, you know, professional secret. It's really not. Everyone's good at it. In fact, many people are better at it than some some of us architects. And certainly a lot of the designers are, are and, and I love this part of working with so many different designers, is that they have very different ways of approaching the furniture plan. So um, it's so? really interesting. Uh, well, you know, like for instance, in that p project with David Kleinberg, the room is long and, um, b but... Uh, to the sofa that's closest to the sort of center of the floor, it's an open space all the way through the building, has a low portion of the sofa that kind of comes out and defines the space without blocking it visually. Um, Thomas Jane tends to group chairs around tables, which kind of is, is, suggests a kind of hospitality that I like. I mean, each designer seems to have different ways of, of doing it. Um, and, and they are... 
not reinventing the wheel every time, which makes it really hard because, I mean, seating arrangements are all based on the way we all like to get together. It's all about people. Um, so I think that when you come into a room, even a room that you might not use every day, the furniture is what populates it and suggests that it's a congenial place to be. That's what the furniture has to do. So, you know, when I do terraces in New York, sometimes people say, well, I'm not going to go out there. And I say, I understand when it's freezing and the wind is howling, but just having two comfortable chairs and a table that you can look at there suggest that you're invited to be there and that you imagine yourself there. And it kind of is an open and friendly gesture. Well, also, if you don't have, if you don't have chairs, then you can't use it. Right, right. You so can't use it. Yeah. Maybe you're not using it because it's not congenial enough. <laughs> right. You know, I, but I believe in furniture, even in places where no, like literally just part of it is just making it, of course, comfortable and usable, but um, yeah. Well, in the beginning of the book, um, I guess the, the introduction, you um, talk about, you know, we're, you're talking about plans, but you did mention all of the sort of advancements that your firm has taken on, you know, 3D, 3D renderings and um, 3D printers. And I was wondering if you could kind of share some of that with us because I found it to be so interesting that like, you know, on the one hand you're designing projects with all of these sort of classical proportions and, um, you know, guidelines, but then you also are embracing the future too. I mean, I think the best way of, of relating to scale and making space is doing a hand drawing. I think it's very difficult to learn how to do that on a keyboard. But I think once you've, uh, once you're into the design, I think the digital tools are incredibly helpful. Um, and, you know, I was skeptical for a long time, but um, I admit when I'm wrong. And actually, they're really helpful. Uh, and one of the programs we use allows the construction of a, of a virtual model of the house um, where everything is inside the walls, even the pipes and the beams. Um, and the engineers can be putting their part of the structure in simultaneously. So everyone's contributing to this shared, it's like a shared document. Um, and so that's incredibly efficient and it helps the building process and it helps the estimating and it helps the contractors and it helps the framer and the electrician and the plumber and all but it but it also means that we can take that data and make 3d um, views either print them out or on screen or do virtual reality where the client puts on a headset and they're actually you know in the room and looking around um, which is you know i don't think everyone needs that but some people really want to see that level of detail um, and so we have a whole way of doing this so that people don't get stuck on specifics. Once you show something hyper real, it could become distracting. You know, what's that, what's that chair doing there? Or I don't like the bar stools. So instead what we do is we, um, you can either design the furniture and input it digitally, or we use placeholder furniture, which we actually put blue upholstery on every single thing that is not, is only there for scale. So people don't think we actually chose that chair. <laughs> Um, and sometimes things That's get smart. odd, like we had a library that looked a little bleak because the the shelves were empty. Um, and then this young man in my office said, we have to buy books. And I said, what do you mean book? He said, there's a market, you know, there's an online virtual market for virtual, virtual books. <laughs> so we didn't charge the client for the books. It was only about $87, but it, we filled all the shelves. That is amazing. <laughs> That's wild. 
Because like empty shelves are really depressing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It does not feel as cozy. Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. I love that you figured it out though. You're like, no, no, now we're just distracting. (laughs) Like we've gone too far. Yeah. Yeah. But but then sometimes the designer will give us the exact furniture. And that's amazing when you actually have, Mm. you know, exactly what's there. And the scale is incredible with it. Virtual reality, you get a much more realistic sense of the scale of the room or the building than you do from flat drawings. Well, one of the other projects that I loved was the the one in Ohio, in outside of Cle- Cleveland, I think. Um, yes, yes, right next to Rowdy Meadow. Oh, okay. I, well, I, yeah. I knew that they were both in Ohio. I didn't realize they were that close. But um, And it seemed like they kind of took the opposite approach. It sounded like they sort of were like, we trust you. You do it. Yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> so can you can you share like kind of describe that a little bit to our listeners? Well, they you know had a uh, you know like any project it was a lot about responding to the land and it's a beautiful um, site um, in a neighborhood parts of which are suburban but then there are larger lots and this is one of them and so we pulled the house all the way to the back overlooking a pond um, so. We, you know, the house isn't very deep, so almost all the all the important rooms get the best view. Um, and they also get light from other sides. Um, and then their program was very clear. They wanted, you know, a real formal dining room and a real formal living room. And, um, and you know, a whole sort of array of rooms that you'd normally find in a house. But we designed it so that you'd experience um, those imp- more important rooms every day. Um, as you go between the bedrooms and the the master bedroom end of things and the and the kids and the guests. So um, the way the hallways work, one of them upstairs overlooks both the living room and the entry. So you get a sense of connection. Um, you know, I don't, I, it's a perfect example of um, the rooms all being woven into the plan and into your daily experience as opposed to houses that you see occasionally where you feel like, well, the living room and the dining room are in a way they're beautiful, but they're kind of orphan rooms. You know, you pass by them and wonder, when am I going to go in there? Um, so we solved it with this house. And the biggest event in the house is the double height window facing the pond at the center. And you're drawn to that from the moment you walk in. It has a lot of very sculptural ornament, big brackets and moldings. And we really had fun with that. It was truly almost shocking that that was a new build. I just kept kind of flipping back and being like, okay, I have to reread that. This is new, right? (laughs) And it's in Ohio. Yeah. Because because that's the other thing is that it feels so much more like a country estate. In England. England. Yeah. 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 That there's a duke or duchess about to just walk into these (laughs) these crazy. I mean, the yeah, the formal living room is just outstanding mm-hmm. with that double height window and you know and miles red putting some fabulous touches of mm-hmm. you know a peacock in the corner <laughs> like oh, as, only miles, just all, uh, as I, only miles can actually that believe it or not that every other wonderfully exuberant miles detail is we know where it came from but that peacock actually came from a store of friends of mine called Creel and Gao. I think the client oh, really? bought it. Oh, yeah. They were visiting New York. Now, I doubt they took it back in Carry On, but somehow it made its way back to Ohio. Amazing. And it's just perched over a doorway. It's just so yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, well, I, yeah. It, the thing that was so amazing about this is I felt like, well, your 
architecture was so grand when paired, especially with Miles and David's um, decorating, which also is so, yeah, exuberant, I think is the word you used. But it just seemed like this perfect, like, I don't know, uh, balance and harmony together. Um, like they, they, they kind of, I don't know, brought out the best in each other or something. Well, I think, I think Miles and David are, are also the, the kind of designer who really care about the craft, the way the curtains are, are, are put together, the embroidery, the, all the, all the parts that make up the piece of furniture, they know about all of it. It's not anything you could get from, you know, a catalog furniture company. It's all very um, thought out and thought through and built by workroom. They probably work with forever. I don't know which one, but all those things, all those details matter. And, you know, it's still a sofa or it's still a club chair. But if you look at uh, the way the piping is or all that, there's just a lot there and it's very resonant. It's not in your face as much, but it's like our architecture, our clients care that we think about all those little things. There were a few Ballard things in the house. Oh, there were? Mm-hmm. Because there, yeah. were, there were a few things from his no, collection. They, no, yep. they, well, that's the other great tradition in the great decorators like Billy Baldwin. They'd know how to use the catalog and the bespoke. Like the the 100% bespoke house is is kind of boring, but like Billy Baldwin did exactly that. He would know where to buy things that were well made but more economical and more you know available, and then also just build things that were exceptional. I, well, you had to use some eagle eyes, but I <laughs> I only noticed because again, yeah, again, working with Miles, I knew which pieces were ours. Yeah. To be fair. <laughs> um, no, I want to hear more history on that on the North Shore estate that you guys worked on, um, the one from uh, that was in Massachusetts. Uh, yeah, so that was um, a very interesting house. It was started as a shingle style house. It was a wooden mansion, uh, and within ten years of its creation, the owner made a fortune and decided what they really needed was a French chateau. So they built a, a brick and stone house that wrapped the original wood house, literally. So when you're in the basement of that house, you step out a door into another part of the basement that is a donut that wraps around the house. It's, it sounds so bizarre. So the house has a really intriguing and complicated history. Um, and they had the best craftsmen. The carving is so beautiful. Um, and we were able to restore a lot of the house. And the, the client was wonderful. And they they understood that the kitchen being in the basement and kind of the character of this upstairs downstairs arrangement was essential. And so they didn't do what 99% of us would have done, which is to move the kitchen and make it in, you know, more on the living room floor. Um, and so it's, it's really, it's seamless. And we were able to replicate some of the old tile from the walls, reuse some of the old sinks, put things here and there. Some of it is um, things that, uh, you know, are kind of stock pieces or found pieces all woven into something very old and precious. Um, yeah. So, you know, when they were finished, the kitchen, I think, took a lot of, uh, well, time and effort and care and, and money. And uh, a couple of their friends have shown up since and said, why didn't you renovate the kitchen? <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's really funny. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And, no. and, and, and Max Rollett, the uh, British designer who worked on it, is terrific. And, um, and he knows how to spot beautiful things. And, and he knows a lot about furniture. So he's a, a treasure. 
how do you do the how do you do the the research for a project? I mean, how much how much is there to like about one specific house? Like, how do you learn that? I guess. So you start with the architects. You know who the architects are, and there's usually a way of finding out where the archives. Many, you know, prominent architects would have archives either at Avery Library at Columbia, which is the greatest architectural library um, in probably in the country, or um, in other, you know, local historical societies. Um, and there's a whole trove of material about houses and buildings that weren't necessarily famous when they were built, but there were all these architectural design journals that would write about new houses um, where it's mostly words. There aren't a lot, there obviously aren't a lot of beautiful, there are no pictures, maybe a little plan or a sketch, um, but the American Architect and Building News, for instance, would have, so there are all these sources. And for, for instance, Olmsted Company did the landscape. There's, um, there's an archive there and you find the planting plan and, the landscape architect did. And so, um, and then part of it is, so part of it is library and archival research. And then the other part is looking um, at things and, and being able to discern, you know, what, what came first and, and um, the architecture itself tells you a lot of that story. You can see where things have been altered. You can tell by materials, the way things are joined. Um, so, and then sometimes it's very obvious, you know, if you have a linoleum floor in a, in, you know, a kitchen like that, but sometimes it's more subtle and we did find that there, there was a big safe, um, in the house. That was, that was fun getting that opened. So can uh, anyone do that? Yeah. Like go try to find the history of their home or. Yeah. Yes. Yes. You have to know where to look and different New York has a whole trove of resources. We have the Historical Society. Uh, we have the New York Public Library. We have Avery Library. But there, yes, they're different. Um, the, you, you, can really, you can really go off the deep end and just keep digging and digging and digging. Um, yeah, Anne and I taught an NYU class for years about called Reading the City. Um, and she actually gave one of the seminars with us about how to research a building in Manhattan. And you can even get into, like, you can find the census records. So you can find out in a building on Broadway, uh, you know, who, who lived there, what their profession was, how many servants they had. Um, it's, it, it, you know, it's endless. Wow. wow. And then that, and then that makes people, people feel better about squeezing into an apartment with two kids. When you tell them, actually it was two kids and a cook and a maid, you know, stuffed into the back. So. Oh my gosh. But can we go back to the safe you said you opened in this oh, mansion? Yes, there was was that, yeah. I feel like that was a pirate chest and you didn't see yeah, what no, was they inside. Opened, yeah, they opened it. So the, it had two envelopes. I wasn't there, but it had two envelopes, among other things. One said old money and one said new money. <laughs> 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 and the client was really lovely. They returned it to the seller. They didn't even open them. They returned them to the seller. Oh, well, that was very so, nice. I know. New money, old money. All right, well. I just wanted to circle back to that because yeah, I wanted yeah. to know what was inside. <laughs> yeah, no, we have another project that has five safes and they've finally been cracked. One of them took like a long time and there, there's nothing of interest. It was so disappointing. Oh, that's so disappointing. <laughs> oh, it's a repeat of the Al Capone's vault. Right. <laughs> you have so many um, beautiful uh, 
or not country home, these Long Island beach homes in the book as well that are so, um, just so much character in them. Um, for instance, the one that was the, hold on, the 17th century guest house. There we go. Was this yeah, that's, a, that's really a treasure. That's the oldest house um, in Suffolk County where the Hamptons are. Um, it's really old and it was in, 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 uh, it hadn't been really taken care of. Um, so it had a lot of rotten wood around the base when we started. Um, and we had it moved into the middle of a field and then we applied for permission from the town to make it into a guest house because they had a, a zoning limit on how many dwelling units you could have on this land. Um, but the town, the village historian, um, was really excited and helped us document the history and the condition. And he convinced the planning board to um, let it be grandfathered, which is because we had we the seller had a demo permit for it. It could have just been literally just thrown out. So, um, and wonderful craftsmen um, who um, you know were able to put it together um, bit by bit. Um, it was that was terrific. And Robert Stillen was wonderful to work with. And you can see that he puts in. Um, you know, some furniture that you wouldn't expect to be there. He, he just finds, he's such a broad range of, you know, he'll find a mid-century thing or he'll find an antique or he'll find something in the catalog. He just, it's like all woven together. No, the house is amazing. And I, I, I did you have to convince the owners to keep no, it? No, no, they, they were, they were excited by it. Um, and, and when we told them it could be salvaged, and we had all the inside digitally scanned and then we they were able to label all the parts take them apart put them back together and then we had some extra beams left over from another structure and those were made into uh, a gym which is attached to it so it kind of all made sense that's just so neat it's so pretty i i read somewhere that you recently started a conservation division of the firm yeah so a lot of our projects involve um, older properties that need preservation or are required to have preservation. And that's an area where design matters, but also technical knowledge matters. Um, and so we have uh, a man named Luke Leeson, who's running that now, who is taking on projects where, um, you know, a roof has failed or a marble balustrade is in bad shape or an entire building needs to be um, you know, re re rebuilt, you know, re-roofed, and there are all these complicated copper elements, or, you know, we're doing, this sounds incredibly kind of ordinary, but we're doing a sidewalk on Park Avenue for a club in front of the McKinney and White building, but the, there's a tunnel underneath it, so there's all this complicated, there's a like a sealed tunnel, literally, this, you know, so there are all these complicated preservation things, or how do you press copper to get the old profiles that were there since 1890? We're doing that in one. And so he has brilliant technical knowledge. And also, he's since he's seen how things, how old buildings leak or how things don't always stand up, he's very good at uh, looking at our detailing for new houses and making sure that we're putting things together in a way that will leave the owner without any maintenance concerns for a very, very long time. Um, so like we put copper pans that are hidden under each window in our houses so that like, no matter what happens, it will never, you know, it can't, it can't leak because you literally have a pan that's hidden underneath. <laughs> that's amazing. And so smart. 
and and it's really and people love hearing about these um you know how to fix up something that's in distressed state i mean it's it's and it's exciting and the craftsmen love it too they love the fact that they're able to recarve lost bits of stone ornament or recast you know or die stamp copper um, so the connection with the with the artisans and the contractors is really important for us yeah i think that's something we talked about in one of our our first episodes with you um, yeah. the quality of the the building being as important as the the quality of the design yeah, I mean the best. I think the best approach to sustainability, as sort of a starting point, is making sure that you really try to make something that will never need to be torn down. If it's good enough to be repurposed or reinvented or modified, but you know, if you can keep that house and have someone not have to, you know, throw it in a dumpster, you're already having a more sustainable future. And you talk in the you talk in the book about um, you know like scholarship being really important, researching being a really important. You know, you have an extensive library, but I was wondering, kind of on the like, I guess user side of that, like what if you were to convince a uh, someone to hire you? I guess not that it takes much convincing, but like what it, what does it mean on the other side, and how does it set the project apart to have all that research behind? you know, before the work starts, like, where's the yeah, difference? I, I, well, I, I mean, honestly, I don't think the client realistically has to spend any time on it or think about it much if they, unless they're interested, but you know, they, it's not like we take out some old dusty book and say, this, this is the perfect stair. You must do this because it was, you know, Herman Finkelstein did it in 1891. It's like the only, you know, where it's not like that. And it's not imposing esoteric knowledge on people, which is I find really tiresome. It's more that because we've we're so familiar with, you know, nineteen ways of solving a townhouse here. Because let's say every townhouse in New York, not everyone, but a lot of them are twenty feet wide, and they have a stair in the middle. We and it doesn't mean we're geniuses. We literally know all the configurations that have ever been tried. And we sort of know that like in our heads. So it helps us think through what we think will be beautiful. And it also helps us explain to the client if they have an idea, what we can do with that idea. Or if it's, listen, if it's a bad idea, we can also explain, here's what happens if you do a stare this way. <laughs> we can even show them in a book. So, um, but really it's just to try to be better architects and be better at what we do and also be better, be more practical um, because there, there's so much practical knowledge in, in older, and by the way, when I say older, I mean anything that's already built, basically. So it could be something that was built in, you know, 1970, which is now 50 years old, but it could be something really interesting. And um, there's so much practical knowledge in how to build something and how, you know, how it feels and how it ages and how it works. With that, I just, I wanted to ask, and I was trying to formulate it. That's why I was, <laughs> uh, don't sound like an idiot. Um, just thinking through the finishes you use, because I know there's, so, you know, with the tile and, um, you know, you, you've got so many different clients and obviously styles within the book, but, you know, there's light woods and dark woods in offices and you, you know, and the tile varies too on size and shape and um, just the longevity of what you're seeing now um, is there anything you see that's been beautiful, stays beautiful, that people should be really trying to put in their own homes? 
I still love things like subway tile. It's reasonably priced. It's robust. It looks good. I happen to like it with dark gray grout, but that's just me. So there's some things that I that are very basic that I think every house should have. And I also think that a house where everything is fancy is just doesn't seem right to me. So I did have a client who said, oh, look at this black and white marble floor. It's, it's really not that expensive, my laundry room. And I said, no, your laundry room is in the basement. It shouldn't have the same floor as the you know, gallery when you walk in. So I believe in a hierarchy. And I think things that are special are more beautiful when there's an economy in other places. So, you know, so I'm not an architect who's going to be like wanting to put gilded hardware in the cellar, you know, like, but, and then if, you know, the, the, the thing to do is keep your eyes open for new materials um, because they're always new sources. And some of them come from very unexpected places. Um, Katie and I visited um, a, a workshop in Fez like 20 years ago where they were making these little mosaics by hand and firing their own tiles and glazing them by hand. And, um, and that's just been a wonderful source. And that's now represented by a store in Manhattan um, and it's become very popular. Um, but we really love the fact that we were there when it was like literally like they, they were, the workshops had dirt floors. It was really fun. Um, and we also found a carver in a source in Kabul in Afghanistan um, that's under the umbrella of an organization called Turquoise Mountain, and they made wood screens for us that are incredible. Um, and so, and then there are special artisans um, who do uh, back painted glass, um, glazing, decorative painting, all those things. And they're, they're really brilliant, brilliant talents. And we're lucky when we get to work with them, but we don't always have to do that. Um, we, you can do things in an economical and surprising way. Thomas Jane, who we work with a lot, was asked to spruce up this rectory of a church in Times Square. Um, and he had this pattern uh, printed on like vinyl to just put on the walls of this dining room in the church. And um, it was lovely because it was like a really kind of bold decorative idea, but it was brought into kind of an economical and, and surprising, surprising way doing it okay you say you have like a list of 10 things that every house should have and i want to know what that list yeah. is other than subway tile yeah what should every <laughs> house have well i mean i'm i really think that kitchens should be designed for the cook i don't care about like the kids running around they can be on the other side of the island that's my no i mean i think a well a well laid out kitchen and laying out all the practical things in a house to make taking care of your house easy is good for all of us. It gives you more time to do other things. It, if you have someone helping you, it's, it makes their time more useful. Um, like what, I, what is that? Like, how does that translate into an actual floor plan? I guess. Well, I'm just, now I'm going to sound like this. It's like total housekeeping or a bit things like in a, in a multi-story house in New York, if you have an elevator, I believe in having one cleaning place with a cart, like in a hotel. And instead mm -hmm. of having a closet on every floor, Mm. Uh, the linen closet should be conveniently located. Uh, um, just laundries, kitchens, all that stuff. It's not maybe the most glamorous part of our jobs, but it's really important and it really helps when it's done well. Um, the other thing that I think is important is for people to have, and these are all practical things. These are not about the kind of atmosphere of the design, but I think privacy is really important, especially since 
COVID, we've discovered how much people appreciate that. So I think that it's great to have open flowing spaces in where the f people are together. And I don't believe that rooms should be sequestered from one another, dining room, living room, kitchen. I'm in my, our own house is totally open, right? Uh, but for bedroom studies, all the other things, I think there's a real virtue in being able to retreat and be able to have acoustical and, you know, privacy mm -hmm. and, and feel like you're in your own space. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's a planning, that's a planning thing. And then of course, having the, the most important thing is that the character of the house and everything in it should seem uh, like it's relating in a very calm, solid way to the character of the house and the people who live there. Um, you know, we all want to feel at home and I, you know, I think we should try to do, you know, fo focus on what the essential character of the house is, kind of the soul of the house, and not try to have every last thing that you've ever seen in books or magazines in your travels. I think we, we often make our lives so difficult by thinking we're going to be able to have every single feature. Um, and I think just having a coherent character that you really love is better. Um, I also like there's some it sounds like a random list, but there's some planning devices that I think are important. I think it's, uh, I prefer where possible, not always to have the stair not be immediately in your face when you enter a house. I think it's interesting for the stair to be either in an adjacent room or sometimes tucked away um, because it's, um, because the stair often leads to the bedrooms and it sort of is a more private procession. Um, and then I think if you don't have the stair in the middle of the house, the whole aspect of going up and down a stair is part of the kind of experiencing the architecture of the house. It's more interesting if you're, if that stair brings you in my house, it brings you to an unexpected view. It brings you to this, um, this bay window that has, has a, has a different view that you, if, than if you were just looking at it right in front of you. Um, and I think that the surprise and sort of impression of a house should be held back a little bit from the entrance. This is another, and it's not always this way, but I don't think it's often successful to just have a big double height hall the moment you walk in with a big sweeping stair. Um, to me, that seems, it could be beautiful and um, exciting for a bit, but it seems like you're showing everything immediately and then everything else, you know, sort of falls behind that. I, you know, I think where possible, it's great to separate to have a hierarchy of bedrooms, I think is good and not do cookie cutter bedrooms. I mean, I, um, I grew up in, you know, in the, we had a house outside of New York where the boy and girl bathrooms that we had for me and my siblings were so perfectly aligned that there were medicine chests that were so perfectly aligned that they used to make a slot in the back of medicine chest to put your used razors that would fall into the wall sounds really weird so but it was it was such a cookie cutter house that you could see through the slot into the next bedroom bathroom <laughs> so we all it's at all, pretty funny <laughs> i know at, at all costs that was my cookie cutter lesson literally like don't do that <laughs> keep the um, medicine cabinet closed at all although, times. <laughs> although, although in my house um gregory gilmartin uh, my partner he really did a lot of the design i mean he was the one who drew it up i he had no idea that he'd lined up the medicine chests in uh in the kids bathrooms perfectly with these octagonal windows because and i i had to show him like when you're looking at the sunset it looks like this orange is blasting from inside these bathrooms and it's just that they line up perfectly 
with the mirrors. It's it's absolutely unintentional. So sometimes it's the things that That's surprise us that are the best. Um, and if it's a square house or you don't have rooms that are have a lot of light sources, I believe in bringing light into the middle of the house, which you can do uh, with a skylight lay light, or you can do it with a dormer and a lay light. A lay light is essentially just a window in the ceiling. Um, and, and that's a really important thing because I think it's great to have light on all sides of a room. Well, maybe not all sides, but at least two sides, three sides is better. Four is amazing. Um, I think it makes for a happier house. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good tip. Yeah. Especially as we just did time change and we all feel that. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> well, we do have a, um, a listener dilemma that we would love for you to help us with mm -hmm. unless oh, i'll try <laughs> liz or taryn if you oh. have a final question i feel like peter's gonna really be helpful for this listener because yeah. yeah it's so. the perfect question for you a question from Al alana okay she says, hi, I love the podcast. I listen every week and enjoy it so much. Thanks, Alana. That's so nice. I hope you can give me some advice. I'm attaching photos of my breakfast room slash sunroom where we eat most of our meals. Please note that I live in a, in a farmhouse on an actual farm. My wow. dilemma, I love that she had to clarify, like, it's not an, it's not an urban farmhouse. <laughs> um, my dilemma is a window treatment for the three sets of French doors. It took several attempts at the valances over the windows, but I'm pretty satisfied with the gingham you see in the pictures. The French doors all open inward, so nothing can come down below the upper frames, but I feel like the room would be so much warmer with a fabric treatment of some kind. The cellular shades shown showed down in one photo are very practical for winter insulation, but not my aesthetic choice. Thanks so much for any advice on the doors and other and any other way to warm up or improve the room. Thank you. That's really impressive that she, she thought through the issue of the window head and the inswing. Yeah. Okay. So on the left, they are, she has kind of swag like mm -hmm. valances. Um, and then she has furniture there that would preclude having curtains. And then the French doors are, yeah. So what I would do is it looks like on the French door wall that there is room to have stacks of curtain between each set of doors. I think that would be really an improvement. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, what I think you could do to raise your eye is raise the pole. It looks like she may have... Yeah, I, to, to mount the pole higher, which will leave a little bit of wall over the doors. And that little bit of wall could be painted darker to kind of visually connect with the, wind, with the, the head, the lintel over the doors so that the curtains become longer. And a continuous curtain rod wall to wall then is floating maybe eight inches above and then if you keep the, cur uh, the curtain stacks compact enough, I don't think it's going to interfere with the operation of the doors. And then your the whole wall will either be, will either be fabric or window, which is, I think, terrific. Um, it's also worth considering the fact that you only probably are using one or two of the doors on a daily basis. So it doesn't matter if in the corners the out 
the outermost leaves of the doors if the fabric pulls in a little bit more. Um, I think that would add a lot of softness. Yeah, and if she did use one continuous rod, she could kind of, I mean, depending on where like the brackets to mount the rod go, she could always kind of move, you know, if she was going to use one door that she doesn't usually use, she could kind of push that curtain out of the way a little bit. Yeah, I think there may be days when it's really chilly on the farm that you pull, you know, Mm. you cover the sides and leave the center open. Um, Yeah. It would just give it a more of a warm feeling. Um, And then... The, I'm a big, the other wall, I don't know if this is part of the question, but the wall with the valances, um, I think that having, um, I, I'm a big fan of wood blinds, two-inch mm-hmm. wood blinds. Um, and I think you can, you can also order them with um, colored tape, which adds little zip to the room. Um, and I think they just make, they warm up a room a lot. Mm-hmm. And you could even match, they, you could easily match fairly closely to the wood around the French doors. Yeah. And great idea about in the winter. And she could even like get a heavy, heavily lined yeah. drape for a little more insulation. Yeah. And I would just say, be sure you use a, um, a ring with a drapery pin because it, it's much easier to compact your drape when you use a drapery pin versus yes. like a rod pocket or tabs or anything. So Google drapery pin. Yeah. Get someone on yeah. Amazon. They're very cheap. And you just, that's the best way to mount them. But how great to be on a farm and to have that view and the green out there. And, you know. And she has the three windows on all sides. And three, she has windows on three sides. Like you. Yeah. Yeah. You suggested. That's really good. This is a great room. Yeah. All right. Well, there you go. Peter gave you the answer, Alana. I hope that. Um, Thanks for listening to the show and let us know how it works out, what you do. Send us some pictures. Thanks. Um, I appreciate yes. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell everyone where they can find you, follow you, and obviously pick up your new book? Um, yes. Yeah, so our website is uh, ppapc.com. Uh, um, and we're on Instagram under Peter Penoyer Architects. Um, and our book is on Amazon and some retailers, local design bookstores. Um, and, um, yeah, we're, we're excited. We're really uh, thrilled to be on Ballard. It's, you have so many fans, um, and I see your stuff in so many places. Um, it's, it's, it's a big deal. Um, so thank you for that. Well, thank wow. you. We, oh, thank you. We're big You're fans the of big yours. deal. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> yeah. we are honored to talk to you again. Yes. I don't know about that. I mean, I'm big fans. I'm all, yeah. Well, I, and I do small projects too. So if anyone's listening, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm doing a cabin in the woods. I was in Montana last ooh, week. I'm doing oh, a, like a cabin. Amazing. There's, there's no electricity. We're every, I think we'll have solar panels. Ah, um, very cool. Yeah. I would yeah. also love for you to have you and Katie on the show together. I would love to have that, like yeah. the the designer and the um, the <laughs> architect. He's like, no, <laughs> no, no. I'd love to do it. I we we have fun. It's it's all it's all it's all good. Yeah. I I went ran into her office earlier today because we were about to show a client a perspective of a room we designed together, but it looked like the curtains 
we're covering too much of the glass. And Katie pointed out, well, the curtains were your idea. <laughs> and she was right. I said, well, you know, just don't listen to my bad ideas, right? Yeah. Always listen to the good one. Yeah. That's funny. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this Monday well, thank afternoon. You. It's really fun. And that's our show. You can find all of the show notes on our blog, howtodecorate.com slash podcast. To send in a decorating dilemma, email your questions to podcast at ballarddesigns.net so we can help you with your space. And of course, be sure to follow us on social media at Ballard Designs. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Until next time, happy Happy decorating. decorating!